Welcome to Deep Green, a bi-weekly show about how the built environment impacts climate change and equity. Deep Green is brought to you by Metropolis. I'm your host, Avi Rajagopal. Buildings are some of the biggest things we make as human beings. So if you want to know how we can do better for the environment and for all life on this planet, you have to understand buildings and cities and all the things that go into them. And that's what we want to help you with here at Deep Green. Even if you don't care about technology at all, it's likely you've heard something about this new tech paradigm called the metaverse. The basic idea is that it's a sort of three-dimensional immersive internet. The metaverse would take lots of technologies that already exist today, like video games or virtual reality, and find a way to connect all of them. So potentially you could go from joining a virtual work meeting to shopping for shoes in 3D, while being able to pay for goods and services throughout online. Now, we dedicated Metropolis's Jan-Feb 2022 issue to the metaverse, and you can go to our website, metropolismag.com, to read our design guide to the metaverse. But while our team was reporting on this new phenomenon, we began to wonder about the carbon footprint of it all. And we had good reason to start thinking about that. One of the fundamental ideas of the metaverse is that you will be able to buy and sell objects and services in the virtual world using, most likely, cryptocurrency. Now, whether or not you're already invested in cryptocurrency, you might not realize that a single transaction of Ethereum, a popular cryptocurrency, emits about 110 kilograms of carbon dioxide. That's equivalent to driving a car for 276 miles. It gets worse. A couple of years ago, California's Department of Energy found that gaming was the fifth largest use of energy in the state in 2016. Yes, that's just from playing video games, which, by the way, are sort of the birthplace of the metaverse. And you can bet there are a lot more gamers today than there were in 2016. Much of the infrastructure that supports gaming is also fundamental to the metaverse. There's the computers and the goggles and the other equipment. And then there's the software and the cloud. There's no metaverse without the cloud. Even though talking about the cloud sounds like your data lives in some ethereal, beautiful place, it kind of actually lives in buildings, steel and concrete buildings called data centers, which, by the way, currently account for about 2% of the world's carbon emissions. Now, as more people get on the metaverse, more stuff gets on the cloud, more data centers, you get the picture. There's got to be a way to start addressing this before the problem gets out of hand. So that's our episode today. Can we cut the carbon footprint of the metaverse? Can we build an online world that doesn't destroy the real one? Reporter Audrey Gray spoke to an architect and a professor in Seattle, Washington, who were part of a team imagining a completely different future for data centers, and therefore for the metaverse. 
Here's Audrey Gray. Let me tell listeners just a little bit about you before we dive in. Julie Cree is an architect with a specialty in passive house design. She's the founder and principal of Cree Architecture Studios in Seattle. Julie's also a researcher. She earned her PhD from the University of Washington, focusing on high performance building design and environmental psychology, which we're going to get into. She also now teaches at UW. Now, Chris Lee has an engineering background. He has degrees in architecture civic and environmental engineering, earned his PhD as well from University of California, Berkeley. He's a prolific academic writer and an endowed associate professor at the University of Washington. And he's paired all of that with international field experience. One of Chris Lee's specialties is estimating the cost of projects, especially sustainable buildings. And there's a lot more to each of these guests, but you'll see as we begin talking about their latest big project, which was working to reduce the carbon cost of data centers. So Julie and Chris, let's begin with sort of what's happening right now. Now we know it takes a lot of hidden hardware to support all of our various tech habits, but for listeners who've never seen a data center in person, could you describe for us just like sort of what these server farms generally look like in person and what they're made of? Sure. Happy to do that and try to create a visual for our, the listeners. So there are basically two different types of data centers. One is called a hyperscale data center, and that's usually in a rural location. And the other is called edge cloud. And that data center is usually in a more urban city environment or city setting. And so if you think about a hyperscale data center, it's typically located where there's open flat land, rural areas, it's accessible or has access to less expensive power. So think about hydropower in the Pacific Northwest. And importantly, it's usually located where there are a few natural disasters. So Phoenix is a good example of that. No earthquakes or tornadoes, things like that. And the criteria of those uh, three things is really important because data centers take space and power to drive a critical mission. It's called a critical mission facility. We need to rely on them at all times. And for this reason, there are redundant facilities adding to the need for larger and larger server farms. So you don't just need one data center, you need a complete redundant situation. So if one goes down, the other is still up. They look like sort of many, many football fields in a row of Costco's, right? They're just giant sort of warehouse type of things. These buildings are typically made of concrete steel and enclosure panels, like for the sides, just like a Costco would be. It's a warehouse, but instead of for, you know, Amazon distribution centers or Costco foods, it's a, it's a warehouse for server equipment for companies like Microsoft, Google, and others. So inside, it's just racks and racks and racks of servers, right? Correct. And your idea of football fields worth of, of enclosures, light industrial building type enclosures, is very accurate. But the further away a data center is from where the information is used or the data needs to be processed, there's more latency or lag time between when the data is called for and when it's supplied. Hence the need to move closer into cities where that information is actually used. 
So think about 5G networks, driverless cars, the need for real-time instantaneous data. The more you need that, the more latency matters. This is driving edge cloud computing. So the data centers are located in smaller buildings or parts of buildings. An example might be the University of Washington data center for computational research. The data is on the campus because it's the information is needed that quickly. When you have like a, a small baby edge cloud server farm in a building in a major city, they still run very hot, right? You're going to need a lot of HVAC to cool off that center. We call them DCs, by the way. <laughs> this is what Julie and Chris have taught me, DCs. So you have, to, you have to cool the DC no matter what the size and then keep it really secure. And usually you're dealing with a lot of concrete. So I wanted to hear like what else goes into them besides the racks of servers. Well, mechanical systems, for sure, Yeah, to do just what you're saying. Data center can have a different types of mechanical systems, and then you can rely on consuming a lot of energy to keep it online and uh, making it reliable. And one of the most popular setup in any data center right now is using hot iron and cold aisle, where the cold air comes in through the mechanical system and the cool down the, the servers, and then after cooling, the hot air comes from the other side and goes through the hot aisle and goes out. And, and it, then it, the, the air circulation keeps happening and it comes a lot of energy. And that's one of the things that you will get to see when you're visiting a typical data center. One is enclosed and the other is open where the air comes in and it goes out. And the mechanical stem handles all of, all of that and consuming a lot of energy. And that's a really big deal in a hot climate. I know because if it's 105 degrees outside, it's, it's tough to, to get the, the thermodynamics right. So let's talk about carbon cost of, of all of this. We have millions, actually, and more in the U.S. than anywhere, but millions of these DCs around the world. What are they costing us in carbon emissions right now? As everybody can easily agree, the demand for online contents and related computing has gone up exponentially over the last decade or two, which makes the data centers one of the fastest growing industries. To answer your question in terms of its carbon emission estimates, researchers are in general agreement that the data center industry as a whole account for one to 2% of the global carbon emissions currently. Wow. And in addition to that, in terms of electricity demand, the data center industry is estimated to consume 1% of all electricity per year globally, which is almost as much as what the state of California consumes. Do you expect that to grow, Chris? Because I know as we start getting into metaverse types of experiences. It sounds so cool. We can take walks. We can have these 3D walks with friends in international cities, and we can have you know automated vehicles, obviously, NFT market, and whether or not you're into Bitcoin. All those things are just expanding, not to even mention gaming, et cetera. So does that all require a lot more hardware? Yes. And officially, I'm not into Bitcoin yet. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> yes, the emergence of metaverse will definitely be a driver for a lot more data centers in the near future. And I have no doubt. And I think the industry is still trying to figure out whether the demand can be largely met by edge cloud close to the urban areas or remote rural data centers or both, like uh, Julie was describing earlier. Personally, I cautiously anticipate that metaverse will trigger development of more edge data, edge type data centers that can support lower latency connections than remote rural ones do. Either way, what is obvious 
uh, is advancement of metaverse idea cannot be achieved without an extensive expansion of physical data center infrastructure. Which just puts us in danger, further damaging the real world, creating our virtual ones. It makes perfect sense to me why you all took this on, but I'm, I'm also impressed with how and when you took on this problem. I mean, most of us were barely getting through 2020 and you all managed to run a multidisciplinary seminar with all kinds of design students and sort sort of uh, get them dreaming and planning and just brainstorming completely new ideas for lower carbon data centers. So can you tell us a little bit about this class and how you set these students up to tackle this? From our work with data center design researchers, it became increasingly clear to us that to design and build a better data center that used less energy and potentially helped to solve some of the carbon emissions problems associated with construction, it would require multiple disciplines, engineers, architects, construction management, real estate. It would really take uh, a village, if you will, to create something new. And for an example, as an architect, I know from a, a physicist on our team, that new computer chip can be designed that requires less cooling. Now, if I know that because I have a physicist on my team, then I can build something or design something that can utilize lower natural ventilation cooling systems instead of energy demanding systems. And this, if it's done in the Pacific Northwest, saves both energy and cost for the structure. So that was how the class started to get conceptualized. We knew that our young future students of design and engineering would need to work together. They'd need to come out of their silos and work together if they were going to be truly innovative. The U University of Washington College of the Built Environments has a course that's been set up just for this purpose. It is an interdisciplinary studio and seminar class that brings students together from all five departments to work in teams to solve the grand challenges of our day. So if we took this model further, we said, well, if we have interdisciplinary student teams, then we should replicate this amongst the faculty, add in some other universities and industry partners. So that's how our project, Launch a Sustainable Data Center into the Future, was born, with students from architecture, landscape architecture, construction management, faculty from UW, University of Pennsylvania, and University of Arizona, and then we partnered with Microsoft and Google. We also wanted to push the boundaries of a typical data center, so our students were tasked to think of this project as a moonshot where the rules of gravity didn't apply. So they were challenged from the get-go. Yeah, I interviewed one of your students, and it was really fun talking to her, Valerie Milbrath, and she was saying that they were shocked in the beginning. I don't think they realized how ugly a lot of the current data centers had been and, and how incredibly carbon emitting they were, even in structurally alone in the steel and concrete. And so she was, she said they had a good time even during the pandemic and it was challenging, but fun. So Google and Microsoft came in and, and offered the students a little bit of their own expertise, right? And I know Google funded it, but they were helping the students get a sense of like what the real world challenges are. Absolutely. For Google and for Microsoft both, they came in and did design reviews. So in a studio class, the students would design something, would design a building with constraints that were given to them from their faculty. And then 
push beyond those constraints. Microsoft and Google pushed back to get them to consider Good. more real life scenarios. And so from that push pull, I think there was a lot of tension actually between how much do they stick with the traditional way data centers created and how much do they push beyond that. So for instance, the big ideas that our Seattle-based student team came up with was to completely redesign the server cabinet layout. So instead of a rectangular box, they designed it in such a way that they could use one third of the space and created a circular configuration with the data center servers that begat a circular data center building. And that allowed them to use natural ventilation stack for cooling the servers, which were arranged in a ring formation around a central ventilation shaft. It reminded me a bit, and you can see pictures, by the way, of some of the students' ideas and designs in our story and in a report that Julie and Chris and others wrote together about these students' really innovative ideas. But that one in Seattle was cool. It looked like the Guggenheim Museum in New York. It had that spiral vibe. It was really good. And also, I know like it, it was the first time I ever looked at a building and thought, oh, a data center could be something that I would want to see in my town. Exactly. So our students were, were tasked to design a living building challenge building. And if you use the living building standards, so that's a voluntary beyond code standard to build with your surroundings, to build with the environment, it's often has a beauty component. It has a uh, low carbon component, energy component, and it's very holistic. And our students were challenged to design something that would consider the neighborhoods with, within they were built. And there was a lot of pushback from the data center companies to say, well, that's not as important. But in fact, it is important, particularly as edge clouds become developed, because the data center itself becomes part and part of our lived experience in our cities and our urban environments. Deep Green will be right back after a short commercial break. Deep Green is brought to you by Ultra Fabrics, a Metropolis Sustainability Next partner. Eco Luxury has a new name, Volar Bio by Ultra Fabrics. One of the first bio-based high-performance fabrics on the market, Volar Bio uses renewable ingredients throughout its manufacturing to raise the bar on sustainable fabrics. Visit ultrafabricsinc.com today to order samples. Welcome back to Deep Green. Today we're talking about the carbon footprint of the metaverse, more specifically, whether we can build low carbon data centers. Here's your reporter, Audrey Gray, again. Chris, tell me about the uh, other ideas. One of those edge cloud ideas was in New York City, the students envisioned a smaller data center off of the High Line, which right now is just surrounded by like condos and bars. So I was interested in that. Yes, so they, they developed the data center right by the river with a green space behind with a lot of access that is open to general public. So it was uh, eye-opening for them, also for us and for the data center companies. And the data center can, can look that beautiful and it can communicate and then also open up the space to the public use. 
So it was uh, it was very meaningful endeavor that the teams uh, took. What on. what were the ways that students were doing the biggest carbon savings in their ideas? Like how are they getting those carbon emissions down? Phoenix, for instance, right? So they designed their data centers so that you know highest quality, newest technology data center, right? But they used vernacular strategies such as building into the earth, right, for for shade and for cooling and using that earth as the building material for the floors and the walls, thus saving on the carbon emissions by not using concrete. In addition to that, they designed a solar parasol to keep the sun off the roof of the building, thereby keeping the heat out of the building in its entirety, right? So if you can deflect it before it even reaches the building, you've saved on your need to cool the building. The parasol was leveraged to do double duty by generating electricity built out of solar uh, PV panels. So they really leveraged the vernacular with the technical to create this building that was sunken down into the earth. Very creative. Yeah, really creative. And tell me, I know that a lot of their ideas were, they were designing for reuse, the idea that we they knew that these centers would be gutted every few years as technology progresses, and they were trying to create things that wouldn't end up in landfills, right? Well, what were they coming up with? I can talk about one specific project from the Detroit team. They come up with a great idea of reusing suburbs and suburbs, and Typically, the, the data center has to go through, you know, renovation and repurposing every 10 to 15 years, which can create a lot of carbons and also a lot of waste. And what they proposed was to get the suburbs and the lot of material through the building envelope by using construction cranes. And it's just like a Lego pieces. And then they pull out the building envelope and they get the suburbs out and then they repurpose the suburbs and put them in just like a Lego pieces too, and then close up the building, which was a fascinating idea. Of course, there need to be a lot of you know reality check on how it can be done, but by itself, I think that it was fascinating. Chris, I, I love that you bring up reality check because I wanted to talk to you about the 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 one thing that often stalls progressive ideas in the real world, right? Which is clients will balk at the cost of things. And I know you specialize in this area. Are, are there how were these lower carbon DC designs way more expensive? And if they were, how, how do you talk a client into that? Thank you for asking that important question. Yeah, that's where I do research uh, mostly on. And a simple answer to your question is yes, the lower carbon data center design construction can cost more. And this can be due to the use of sustainable construction material, the use of advanced HVAC system, the implementation of on-site renewable energy systems and so forth. But fortunately, when it comes to data centers, we can overcome this so-called first cost barrier more effectively than most other commercial buildings. It is because as we discussed earlier, the data centers consume a significant amount of energy over the life cycle. So when we're promoting more investment in energy efficient systems in data centers that are built and owned by tech companies, we can persuade those companies by showing the life cycle, financial and carbon values of owning such a system over so many years, and which can be a lot more significant than just a first cost. On the other hand, unfortunately, it can be a little trickier to make a business case for lower embodied carbon design and construction because its financial benefit 
cannot be justified that easily, at least not as clearly as energy saving. So, however, the embodied carbon is still estimated to account for, say, um, 20 to 30 percent of the total carbon emission of typical data center. And as we all know, tech companies are under in increasing pressure these days to pursue an aggressive decarbonizing goals such as carbon neutral and net zero carbon. With that said, I'd like to believe and hope that most tech companies will willingly invest on reducing the embodied carbon of their, their data centers as much as their operational carbon soon enough. I think now about how many companies are starting to be publicly examined and even embarrassed about their higher carbon practices, right? That from, from activists, from just anyone who's worried about climate change, we start taking a much tougher look at how these tech companies, and I, I've seen tons of reports on how Bitcoin is so ridiculous in its energy usage, it's so extreme in its energy usage. And I wonder if just sort of a public outcry and need to reduce carbon emissions will get to these big companies. Julie, I know that you had done some research on what is the psychology behind how people choose more green building practices. And I would love to hear your thoughts on what motivates someone to do the smarter thing here for humanity long term. So there are a number of factors and there's quite a bit of new research uh, and it's called pro-environmental behavior. So it takes this idea that there's a psychology that every human being brings to the table when they're going to choose an, an action or behavior. And what has come to light is that pro-environmental behavior identifies four basic values that underpin a person or a company's likelihood or motivation to be more sustainable. These four values are altruistic, so it's good for people, biospheric, it's good for the planet, egoistic, it's good for conserving resources like money, time, convenience, health, or hedonic, which means it's for pleasure or joy or beauty. And when more than one of these values come together, it triggers our, our motivations, right? And the resulting actions, we're more likely to be sustainable and it's more likely to be enduring because we're reinforcing this idea of green identity. So for both Microsoft and Google, for instance, the companies taken on pledges to reduce their carbon emissions, as Chris has said, both in operational energy, so their power, and in embodied carbon, and that's the materials that they construct out of. And what they're doing is demonstrating leadership that's good for people, planet, and their economic business model. Right? They're setting themselves up as leaders in the industry to, to combat carbon emissions in particular. And our hypothesis for this class was that if data center campuses and edge cloud facilities could be designed to address all four of those value streams, then they could be an asset into the communities which they were located. The data center itself could be a large part of a climate solution-driven social, technical, and economic benefit for the communities with, with which they're located, whether that's urban or rural. So for example, as Chris was talking about using buildings that are prefabricated or could be 
disassembled at the end of their useful life. So if you think about a data center that's designed using mass timber or cross-laminated timber in place of steel, or uses new concrete and earthen slab technologies in place of traditional Portland cement and concrete, and if we could design wall and roof panels from algae-based products rather than you know, our typical concrete panels or metal panels, then we're not only launching a more sustainable data center, we're growing the construction and manufacturing industries to support it. And leadership in data center industries know that they have such a drive and a, a command that they can actually shift the marketplace so that data centers in and of themselves are part of the solution. And that, you know, helps drive everybody forward. I, I actually love, Julie, the, how practical those values are. Like you're going to have to deal with an ego and you're going to have to deal with pleasure and you're going to have, you know, it's not all just like shame and, and, and do the right thing. I find them very realistic. I think that it's just great that you did all that thinking about those. There's a lot of research out there that says shame is not really the way to motivate people for an enduring result, right? So if you wanted to endure, you you look at those other four values. So realistic, so realistic. I wanted to talk about just what your hopes are for the future here. We we know that Google and Microsoft took and and I'm sure other businesses saw saw your report and have taken it back sort of inside their, you know, inside their moats, but we don't know what happens inside businesses and they're competing with each other, right? So we won't we won't know exactly what they've done with your ideas. But what's your what's your best hope for what might happen next, Chris? Actually, while we are waiting to hear back from, you know, Google and Microsoft who supported our effort and with the class and uh, Julie also developing ideas and I also develop research ideas and I'm specifically interested in developing a research idea of reusing and repurposing old data center. And I believe that that's, that's the effective way to get one step closer toward uh, net zero carbon. And I... I'm developing a tool that can quantify the embodied carbon reduction potential of data centers through reusing and repurposing. And then I plan to work with some of the industry partners such as Google and Microsoft for its broader implementation and dissemination. And I'm pretty excited about this as I expect it can help us achieve net zero carbon data centers more effectively than the current best practices. So that's what I'm personally doing at the moment while we are hearing we're waiting to hear back. My hopes are to close the divide between the rural and the urban communities, the ones that have greater resources in terms of money and educational and career opportunities and the ones who have been perceived to have less. So if we can start building and driving marketplace that utilizes, let's just let's say materials, right, that are found in rural communities like biofiber and straw waste and agricultural waste products that can become the focus of new sustainable building materials. If we can pull together our waste from one to create carbon storing building materials, I think that companies, high-tech high industry type companies can help drive the need for that kind of low carbon and carbon storing building materials. And we've already seen it in concrete with companies like Blue Planet and Solidia, 
where the concrete, which used to be the biggest problem, is now going to be the solution because it can store carbon. So we can take our buildings from carbon positive to carbon negative. They can become sinks. So I'm very excited about that. Amazing thought. I, I hope Amazon is paying attention to this podcast because I know they're one of the largest, if not the largest owners of data centers around the world. So I hope it spreads like wildfire. So thank you all for, you know, dreaming a little bit with us and, and encouraging your students to dream big and think differently. It's just really, it's, it's just inspiring to, to see them coming up with totally out of the box ideas. May they happen. Thank you. <laughs> thank you all. Thank I you really appreciate interest. it. Thank you. <laughs> Deep Green is produced by Metropolis. I'm your host, Avi Rajagopal, and this episode was reported by Audrey Gray. The podcast is edited by Hannah Vidi with support from Lauren Volker. A big thanks to today's guests and to all the folks at Sandow Design Group who support Deep Green. If you want to read more about the metaverse, head on over to metropolismag.com to see our design guide to the metaverse. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode of Deep Green, available wherever you get your podcasts.